Cybersecurity holes lurk everywhere, and as the Defense Department hurries to get its chain of suppliers to tighten up, it's got a major unlocked backdoor of its own, namely the inventory management systems operated by the Defense Logistics Agency. Now, they've made some progress, but there's still a ways to go. We get the latest from the Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity Issues at the Government Accountability Office, VJ D'Souza. VJ, good to have you back. Thanks. It's great to be here. And you have been watching these inventory management systems at DLA for some years now, and I was surprised to find out how many they have of systems that maintain inventory. Tell us the scope of the issue here to begin with. Sure. So DLA is obviously in many ways the backbone of DOD. DLA makes sure the right materials, fuel, spare parts get to the right place at the right time for both warfighters and civilian DOD employees. There have been some ongoing concerns both from GAO and within DOD and other organizations about the cybersecurity of DLA systems. So what we did for this review that recently came out is we selected six key systems that do inventory management at DLA covering things such as fuel supplies and routing of materials and payments of invoices. And we looked at how well DLA had implemented DOD's risk management framework for these systems. So this wasn't a detailed deep dive technical review. It was more of a holistic approach to how DLA overall was implementing the DOD risk management framework. And how well were they implementing that framework? Well, we definitely identified some issues. So the risk management framework has six steps. And for two of the steps, which are categorizing risk and developing an approach to implementing security controls, we thought that DLA had done a good job. But for the other four areas, we identified some issues. For example, one of the areas is selecting controls, and DLA did select controls, but what we were concerned about is they didn't have a process in place to monitor some of these controls and some of the risks around these controls at the system level. You may have heard kind of a buzzword now about zero trust architecture, kind of the new thing in cybersecurity. Part of what that means is taking a look at security controls at the system level. So sort of assuming that there may be a bad actor in your network and not just monitoring things overall, but monitoring things system by system. So that was one area there were some issues. And then some of the other areas really related to kind of tracking and documentation. So DLA and DOD in general is relying heavily on a computer system to help it implement this risk management framework. And the computer system basically walks people through the steps they need to do to follow all the steps of this risk management framework. What we found is there were some gaps in the data in the system. So DLA was kind of relying on the system to kind of make sure all the T's were crossed and I's were dotted. And there was a lot of times blank and missing information. So one example I'll give you is for monitoring, which is the last step of the risk management framework. We found that 70% of the remedial actions we had outstanding had exceeded the one-year timeframe for addressing them. So that's pretty important, right? So we had identified 1,600 remedial actions, and over 1,000 of them were past the one-year deadline. And then of those, one-third of those were significant enough that they would have required a waiver from DLA management and we didn't find any evidence of those waivers. So pretty significant as far as management oversight goes. That's just some of the issues that we identified. We're speaking with Vijay D'Souza, Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity Issues at the GAO. And we should point out DLA handles everything that the military uses, basically, except ordnance and weapons themselves. And what's the danger here? Should one of these systems be breached, one of the inventory management systems actually get breached? 
Well, supply chain issues can have a catastrophic impact. I mean, I think the example that's made it clear to all of us is the Colonial Pipeline incident, right? So one of the things DLA is responsible for is getting fuel out to the battlefield. So if there's an error in the computer systems that ensure, identify how much fuel is needed and where it's going, you know, you could have equipment that's unusable at a critical point in time. The same thing is true about spare parts for critical machinery. These computer systems all do sort of the underlying work of making sure things get to the right place. So if these systems are either breached or unavailable for some reason, they can have real-life impact. And are the systems in question here at DLA, are they generally hosted in their data centers? Are they old legacy-type systems, or are some of them newer cloud instances, or what do they look like? So the systems we selected for review had generally been reviewed in the last two to three years. So these are... I can't go into sort of the technical details, but I would say they're not sort of by and large legacy systems. There's a reason that they were kind of reauthorized. We were trying to look again at the DLA's implementation of this newer risk management framework. Okay. And you had a series of recommendations then, fresh ones, or five kind of overarching ones to take care of the 1,600 that are partially acted on. Correct. So we made five high-level recommendations to DLA to basically give more thought to system-specific monitoring, not just rely on overall enterprise monitoring for cybersecurity, and to basically make sure the data in this sort of tracking system that they use is accurate and thorough before approving the system. And, you know, if you need to get a waiver because you're not able to remediate something, make sure that waiver is actually done. What DLA told us is in the process of implementing this computer system to track all of their cybersecurity issues, they had to make some workflow changes and they acknowledged that there were some deficiencies which they're trying to remediate. So they generally agreed with the recommendations we made and are taking steps to implement them. And so this was a look at the management oversight and the processes for obtaining cybersecurity. Do you have any sense of whether the systems themselves are actually secure or not? Well, you know, we did look at the technical details that, you know, part of the cybersecurity, the risk management framework is DLA doing its own testing. And we looked at the test results that they had as part of the authorization process. And it varied system by system. Some of the systems had as few as 10% controls that were non-compliant. Some of them had as high as a third. So the situation was mixed. Now, DLA would say that they have compensating controls at the enterprise level to head off some of these issues. But as I mentioned, some of these cybersecurity issues really need to be looked at on a system-by-system level. Yeah, especially if you've got that zero-trust idea, having something down the line or at the enterprise level may not help you with an individual intrusion at a specific system. Exactly. Someone could just root around in there, and then by the time you find them, they're too late. So it stands now that they have accepted those high-level recommendations, which is, again, to kind of speed up the detailed recommendations and make sure those are done and documented. Right. Basically, for the big picture, you know, we want DLA to be able to leverage the advantages it's receiving from the automation tool that it's using for cybersecurity, but it's got to do that by, you know, having manual checks and using people to go behind all the automated tools to make sure the data is thorough and accurate and follows DLA's processes. And we should point out this look was requested by the chairman and ranking member of the House Armed Services Committee, so there's high-level interest in this. Yeah, definitely. And actually, this was also in part written into mandate language from the National Defense Authorization Act as well. All right. So everywhere they look, they've got some mandates there at DLA. Vijay D'Souza is Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity Issues at the GAO. As always, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. 
We'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is starting to lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, And the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness Uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be, uh, uh, to to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. (laughs) Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, 
which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to to fight for change. And that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call Equality of Opportunity Initiative, that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers, and that that attribute I think is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, What comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and the the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, 
who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and 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 I, I I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular common everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government and providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high-level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work. But, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.